Thank you, KDNK listeners, for joining me on the Meet in the Middle show, where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. The hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson. My email address is richardson at roth.net. And today's topic is abortion, the if, who, where, when, and why. And my guest today is Sandy Kister, who I know is a moderator for the Aspen Institute's Great Decisions class she and I attend. Sandy has a master's degree in library and information sciences and the administration of justice, not to mention a law degree. Sandy has many years of public service as a librarian, a police officer, a prosecutor, and now has her own law practice specializing in estate planning, probate, and elder care, which I understand is really important to you. So thanks for joining us, Sandy. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited about today's show. Um, and also, Sandy, I really value your service and your diverse perspectives, which sometimes we don't often hear. Uh, and thanks for being willing to share your time and your expertise with KDNK listeners. Well, thank you so much for hosting a program like this. Keeps me off the streets. Um, all right. Before we dig in, um, is it safe to say or would you agree that just about everyone else would agree that the goal is to minimize unwanted pregnancies? I'm not sure that's actually the goal. I think the goal actually is to figure out where we stand as a society Hmm. on abortion. People have always had uh, children that they're not sure that they want, and other people who are more than willing to tell people what to do with their bodies. Uh And we need to come to some solution as to where is the middle ground between... um, those individual rights and the rights of society to handle that type of question. Which is hard on most policy issues, let alone one as sensitive as this, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, um, but obviously the reality of it is when, when unwanted, so regardless of whether that's the goal for most people or not, um, the rub comes when there are unwanted prog- pregnancies. Um, what do you do? And so what I tried to do is distill the pro and anti-abortion arguments down to a couple of core elements. Um, again, I did my best. It's, it's not totally comprehensive, but I felt like for the most part, um, these, these five core elements for each of them kind of caught, um, um, embraced all of them. So uh, I'm going to start with the anti-abortion Uh, arguments first, and then I'm going to ask you your opinion on them. Sure. Um, So number one, based on the belief, the anti-abortion argument is based on the belief that life really begins sometime between conception and birth, and assumably personhood rights begin at the same time as well. Therefore, any abortion before birth is killing a person. Uh, The second core argument, I think, is abortion is bad public policy because motherhood empowers women more than a right to make their own decisions. Adoption and contraception are better and therefore better public policy. Number three, abortions can cause physical and or mental health problems for the woman later in life. Number four, the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, which I'll refer to as Roe here forward, um, the decision was not founded on strong legal grounds. And we can get into that. 
And lastly, the unspoken argument, in my opinion, is identity. Uh, where the anti-abortion uh, group, I want to belong to the pro-life or anti-abortion camp, and I think the opposite perspective is wrong. Did I miss anything in those five? Or They aren't exact, but yes, um, I think those five cover the basic identifications of the issues with respect to the anti-abortion position mm-hmm. when it comes to ad- abortion regulation. Yeah, and I think some of them lend themselves to regulating or legislating, and some of them don't, but that's that's for a later discussion. Um, so the pro-choice, um, my summation is, number one, the woman should have the freedom or the right to decide anywhere from contraception through birth or however the legal system defines fetus viability, especially in situations involving rape, incest, failed contraception, etc. Number two, Abortion can be a better option and therefore better public policy for the woman, especially teenagers, and or the unborn child for health, well-being, and or financial reasons. Number three, abortion is needed when uh, what I've heard described as pro-family policies such as family medical leave, uh, aka FMLA, programs aren't accessible. So there aren't programs to support new moms, new dads, and others. Um, Number four, the Roe decision made it legal, and stare decisis and reliance should have upheld the Supreme Court decision. Stare decisis essentially um, uh, relying on precedent and reliance being that lives have been altered and systems have been created based on the decision and therefore it should be upheld. And then lastly, the same thing, the unspoken argument is identity. I want to belong to the pro-choice camp, and I think the opposite perspective is wrong. How about that side? I think for the um, pro-choice folks, I think it's a really important argument for them that there's a a due process equal protection Mm -hmm. type argument where um, the proponents would say poorer or um, less wealthy individuals don't have the same access as wealthier people when we start talking about whether this is a state's rights question right. or the federal government question. Mm-hmm. So I think and I think you kind of covered this in number two a little bit, but I wanted to, to make sure that one was a little bit brought to the front. The other thing is stare decisis, um, once decided, always decided, allows us as people to to know what the rules are so right. that we can play by the rules uh, if we're you know, inclined to play by the rules. So we, I think that's important in terms of that precedent piece, although we will talk about whether precedent applies here or not. Right. That's if we have time. That was one of the questions I wanted to dig into. But, uh, well, you also bring up um, you know, some of the nuances to abortion, which is why I titled the show, If if, who, where, when, and why, and um, we're, we're going to dig into those here. Um, so thank you for teeing that up. Uh, the first one is if. So essentially, should abortion be legal? And we'll talk about why and when and who and all that in a little bit. Um, should it be federally, federally regulated or state regulated? So for some background, Roe made it legal across the country in 1973, The Casey decision in 1992 upheld Roe and deferred the when question to state laws. 
Then the Dobbs decision in, in 2022 overturned Roe, essentially making abortion a state issue for now. Uh, however, the Supreme Court could decide to take up the issue again at some point. Um, anything I missed before I rattle off some statistics? No, I think that's correct. Okay, I characterize that. I mean, that's something that those series of events or even what Roe really did, I didn't really understand until I dug into this, you know, and, and okay, what what was it that Roe did? Obviously, I knew that it made it um, legal, but there's just so many nuances out there. Um, but let's talk about or, or, or let me th- um, rattle off some statistics. After the Roe decision in 1973, abortion numbers spiked until about 1990. Then they began to decline around 1990 until 2020 when, a, when annual abortions were down by about two-thirds from the peak in the early 80s. The CD, And according to Pew, there, there are two um, data sources, and they, they somewhat disagree. But the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, reports that the tw- in 2020 there were 620,000 abortions, which was down 1.5% from 2019. But the Gutmacher Institute reports that there were 930 abortions and that that number was 1.5% above 2019. Uh, And both of them include legal induced clinical hospital-based abortions or prescribed pills. And then lastly, to put this in perspective, at the peak in 1981, there were, depending on the source, 25 to 29 abortions per 100,000 people for women ages 15 to 44. And in 22, excuse me, in 2020, there were 14 per 100,000 for the same age group. And for our listeners, I think Grand Junction is about 100,000 people. To sort of put that in perspective, that's how many abortions were, were happening. So any thoughts on that? The statistics I've heard have brought, brought that as low as 11% in recent okay. years, more recent years. Um, it's undoubtedly true that the number of abortions uniquely are diminishing over time, but that may be because we have more options available for people before uh, they get to the point where they need a medically hospitalized abortion. Right. So let's dig into the tough stuff. So for the if question, Sandy, do you think abortion should be legal? It's a hard question, Yeah. to be honest with you. Uh, When we come to the legality of something like... um, a medical procedure that the effect will be the end of what is either life or potential human life, uh, it's, it's a tough call. For a lot of reasons, I would say yes. Uh, like Hillary Clinton, I might say safe, legal, and rare. Uh-huh. Uh, safe and legal are really important points. And if we don't legalize abortion, my fear is that abortions will not be safe anymore. So I would, I would say that uh, we should um, certainly have regulated abortions. The question is, for me, uh, if we have regulations surrounding abortions, should we be sticking very much to HIPAA and asking doctors not to report numbers of abortions specifically mm-hmm. and saying this is related to women's health. And then does the conversation go away? 
But then we have the, the right-hand side of the aisle who are saying you're putting a person to death mm-hmm. before they're even born, and they'll want to know those numbers. Mm-hmm. So what Roe did was it took the first, fourth, fifth, ninth, and 14th amendments and cobbled together the right to privacy that we now recognize. Um, and it said, okay, prior to a certain point, we'll allow abortions because we know that there are all these other effects following the birth of, an, of a baby who's not gonna be able to be cared for or is unwanted as it's, as it's put. So we have to do something. Mm-hmm. Dan, that hasn't changed. Right. <laughs> right? It's, that was 1973. We're still in the same position today. People are going to get pregnant and not necessarily be able to or want to care for this child. So we have to do something to support them. The um, court did find that states could regulate how and when abortions were allowed. Uh, and they, we still need to do that. That's something that, as a society, we need to be able to do. If we disallow abortions, what we would need to do is set up an entire system to provide real homes or a real home, in the case of perhaps an orphanage, Mm -hmm. for babies that are born to people who can't or won't take care of them. And my argument would be we'd have to do that before we start outlawing abortions and setting those things up so they're in place so that we can actually provide a a meaningful life for these children. Agreed. And and we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit, too, because I think that's a really important point. So what I'm hearing you say is um, you, you reiterated what Hillary Clinton said, safe, legal, and rare. And there's a lot of details buried in there, but that at the end of the day, there should be a legal avenue. I do think so. I Like I said, I think if we don't legalize it, it will just push it back into the back alleys again. Yeah. Let's jump to the who. And there's not a lot to discuss here, but I did want to throw out some statistics. Um, access to abortions, let alone, as you mentioned, safe legal abortions, is another area of inequity in the U.S. I think the data clearly shows that. Um, and access is limited by state laws that we'll talk about in a little bit, and a person's financial capacity. Uh, So not everyone can essentially afford to have an abortion. In 2020, 57% of abortions were for women in their 20s, 31% for those in their 30s, 8% were for those in their teens, and 4% were for those in their 40s. So the the plurality is definitely in women in their 20s. Um, And then 86% of women who got abortions were unmarried. That was a statistic that I was surprised. Um, Well, excuse me, this next one surprised me, that 61% were already a parent. So this is a a mother having an abortion for a second um, would-be child. And a New York Times analysis indicates that most are single moms. They're poor. They have some education. And as we just said, they're in their 20s. Any of those statistics surprise you or? Uh... Not at all, really. And uh, although it's, it may surprise you that a mom who already has a child would abort, you said second. I'm not sure it's always second. It may be subsequent. Um, 
women who have one know the struggles of yeah. having children. It's hard. You know you're a dad. Yep. Um, you know, so people making a choice about how much they can provide to another child, tough choice, but I think some of them are realistic. I'll give you an example, um, Dan, from when I was a police officer. I was, ho ho uh, I was having a meeting. I worked in pretty much in the public housing area of the town where I worked. There were 3,700 units of public housing. And I, that's where I spent the majority of my time. Okay. And I had a group of women, and we were talking about how do we get out of this situation, public housing, how do we support you as a society to get to get your lives where you want them. The older women said to me, I need education. Mm. I need a better job. The younger women who are trying to provide for s small children said I need money. Of course. They needed to buy diapers and food and that clothing for their kids, that kind of thing. As they got older, they realized they wouldn't be able to afford more of that sort of thing for their children without a better education. Mm -hmm. But we know that that doubles and triples as we have more and more children. Yeah. And I, I didn't break down the statistics, but you're absolutely right. Um, and the number of abortions diminish the more children you have, but clearly there's data showing that women who already have two, three, and I think even four children are having abortions, but the majority is, it's their second. But um, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, okay, well, let's, let's keep Moving on to where. Again, now that Roe uh, was overturned by Dobbs, access to abortion depends on in which state a person lives. It's worth noting, uh, it, you kind of referenced this earlier, Sandy, it's worth noting that 11 states that have state family medical leave programs, and for reference in Colorado, um, prior to 2024, there was a Family Medical Leave Act that that essentially allowed someone to keep their job and take 12 weeks off for various family conditions, whether it's a death or a birth. And now in 24, there's insurance that helps pay for that. So that's what someone um, th that I, uh, I think it was a podcast I listened to, referenced as the type of program necessary to, s to better support motherhood. Um, but in 11 states that have such programs, like the family medical leave programs, all permit abortion. Of the 13 states that ban abortion, none of them have a state FMLA program. I'm going to pause there, there, because I thought that was a pretty amazing statistic, that for the states who are saying, no, thou shalt have a baby, from these statistics, now maybe there's other things, but it appears that they don't provide the resources to help with having a baby. Um, and the opposite is true. But do you, do you have any perspective on that? I wasn't aware of the Family Medical Leave Act being differently um, legislated in different states. Okay. So, no, I wasn't aware of that. I'm not surprised, again, by the difference between the two types of states. This is herein lies the problem, sure. in my opinion. And we'll get back to that in a minute. I'm sure we'll get back to this, whether this is a state question or a federal question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it also speaks to the complexity of legislation, right, where it's easy to say I'm for this issue or not, but until you understand all the implications or the circumstances, it's tough to make policy. Sure. 
Uh, and secondly, in 1972, 41% of abortions, uh, this is probably the statistic you were rattling off. In 1972, 41% of abortions were performed in non-resident, oh no, this is different, uh, were performed in non-resident states, meaning the mother traveled to another state to have an abortion. Two years later, after Roe, this number was down to 11%, and more recently in 2020, it was down to 9.5%. So when Roe first passed, there was quite a few people traveling, 41%, and as recently as four years ago, it was down to 9.5%, and now we'll see what happens to that number. I'm sure it will rise. Yeah, big time. Uh, Big time. Um, Does any of that surprise you? I don't think any of it surprises me necessarily. It makes me kind of sad that um, this means that people who would prefer to not bring a child into the world have that difficult choice of, uh, can I afford to travel? Uh, Is this the right time to, to go to another state and get an abortion or stay at home and have a baby that I'm either not sure I can uh, raise or I don't want to. So let's go there. We've, we've brought it up a couple of times. Um, and I have a couple questions around this, but do you think abortion should be decided at the federal level or the state level? Well, Dan, um, <laughs> it is not, uh, one of the areas in which I think the federal government was originally anticipated to get involved. Okay. Uh, There are many areas in which the federal government originally was not supposed to be involved. For example, education. Mm -hmm. But if we leave education entirely to the states, we know from past experience the type of education that our kids, our our next generation get is widely different. And even when it's regulated, it's widely different. So... The problem being, though, is if we leave this to the states, some states will decide yes, some will decide no, and people say, well, what's the problem with that? That's fine. But it is this question of economic differences. It is the question of whether then the the um, individuals who are traveling for um, an abortion can't or unable to afford or are unable to afford to travel to another state to get the abortion that they need. Of course, there's all the other questions of whether we're going to prosecute providers or the people that help people travel. We're not going to go there today. I think it's just more important to think about this is a, this is an issue that will um, impact future generations. If children are not wanted or they're unable to be cared for, uh, that the impact on those kids mentally going forward, and in some cases physically going forward, really has an impact on their um, ability to thrive. So if we if we don't allow or we mandate that the states make these decisions and we have people that just can't for whatever reason travel to get an abortion but don't want this child the child is the one that ultimately may suffer and it will cause our whole society to suffer by having people uh, who aren't mentally or physically up to what they would have been had they been wanted Mm -hmm. 
And so I think it becomes a federal question. I'm not hugely in a fan of that. I'm not really in favor of it being yet another federal question. The federal government hasn't been particularly successful in a lot of the policies they've tried to pass and implement. I would think it's worse in this particular case that we have such a fundamental question as to whether someone is born or not left to the states. And let me give you an example, of course. The driving age wasn't 16 everywhere. Right. Uh, and the drinking age wasn't 21 everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the federal government did get in involved in both of those questions. They did it by saying, we'll withhold highway funds if you don't pass this law states. Mm -hmm. They could do the same thing through the Department of Health and Human Services and say, we're not going to pro provide the state with funding if the state doesn't allow abortion, for example. They could do that. They could do the same thing with federal funds for hospitals and medical um, services. It's a way they could go about it to force the states to pass laws that allow abortion. That's not necessarily a great outcome either. We do want consistent, safe abortion if we're going to have them. I want to push back a little bit, though, and, and I hear your point that there's a debate whether or not there's a, in your opinion, there's a a fair debate whether or not it should be decided by the federal government or the states. But is it not a right, and therefore just like freedom of speech and voting rights, that it it should be constitutionally protected? What are your thoughts on that? So I copied, because I don't remember things like this off the top of my head. Um, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion mm. or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's a constitutional right. Gotcha. There are other constitutional rights. When um, adherents of the pro-choice side say abortion is a constitutional right, what they're really relying on is the 14th Amendment right to liberty. Mm -hmm. But let's please be very um, respectful of the other side who says, well, hold on a minute. The r it's the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. Life comes first. And in this case, we have um, a blastocyst that will become an embryo, that will become a fetus, that will become a person. It's not going to become a frog. Right. right. So on that end of the scale, we have people who really believe that this is a life. It's a very immature, very small, early stage life, but it's still life. I don't think we can disregard that. I think we have to be careful to recognize that although a woman's life to uh, right to liberty and to the control of her own body is very important. Our limited knowledge of life's actual beginnings, where consciousness gets into a body, we don't know yet. We're, we're working on it. Uh, and we have to recognize that for the folks who really believe in that, that end of it, the anti-abortion position is actually very much a pro-life mm -hmm. position. That's interesting. I came into this show feeling pretty strongly that it was clear that the 14th Amendment um, covered 
abortion as what I, what as some refer to as an unenumerated right. Um, but I hadn't thought about it the way you presented that. So I think that's, that's worth pondering. Great. Uh, I've done my job <laughs> here today. Yeah. Um, well, and you already answered my next question of whether or not the 14th Amendment protects it. So um, that's pretty interesting. And, and for the listeners, um, as a layman, I kind of consider the 14th Amendment as somewhat of a catch-all to say, hey, there are a lot of rights we didn't specifically list in the Constitution, um, and they include all kinds of different freedoms. Uh, and so hence, that's why it was referenced in Roe, among others, as we're going to use this to legalize abortion. Is that a... F- that's the way the lay person looks at it, and yeah. certainly so did I before I went to law school. Right. Okay. But but when you actually read the opinion, which is a really long opinion, just saying. Roe is. Um, Roe is a very long, okay. long opinion. Um, and as you know, hotly debated, uh, there was no right to privacy. It was something that had been mentioned by the court before Roe, but when the um, and both sides, by the way, the um, the state and the um, attorney representing the woman who wanted the abortion, they both referred to the ninth and the fourteenth. The ninth actually says anything not enumerated belongs to the people. Right. It doesn't actually belong to the government. It belongs to the individuals. So if if there are not enumerated rights in the Constitution, who do they belong to? The ball goes to the runner. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it it actually goes back to the people. So complicated. Very. Uh, Well, I think we might have just missed uh, the bottom of the hour, but uh, let's assume we're still, it's 4.30. You're listening to the Meet in the Middle show on KDNK Community Access Radio. I'm the host, Dan Richardson, and my guest is Sandy Kister. Today's show is abortion, the if, who, where, when, and why. Okay, let's jump back to these big questions and and dig into when. I thought the discussion on where was uh, really informative, so thank you. Um, But on to the when. Certainly there are some who believe abortion should be illegal at any time, as you've mentioned. Um, So basically, you know, as soon as conception occurs, abortion should be illegal, which seems to be mostly a religious belief. I'm sure that's not universal, but definitely my experience in talking to folks uh, who are religious, that there's a common common ground there. And there are those who believe an abortion should be legal at any time, right on up until birth. Public opinion polls conducted after Dobbs indicate that 62% of U.S. adults said abortion should be legal. 36% said it should be illegal. So according to this, and I think I got this off of Pew's website, uh, so public opinion says that when is the more applicable question than if, which is why it's on here. Um, and in between those two views is the personhood slash fetus vi- viability debate. And this debate reminds me, uh, yeah, this debate reminds me of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict with so, so many different angles. So let's dig into this. And um, I, I guess let me, it's, it, it sounds like you would agree with this, but let me ask. Do you believe that the law should dictate a point after which abortion should be legal? It should be illegal, you mean? Just curious. It should be illegal, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so, so, yes, I do think the law at some point needs to say up to a certain point and not beyond. 
uh, for many reasons, but would I say that the law should not be able to change? No. So I think what what I would say on this is as artificial intelligence and um, quantum computing get mm-hmm. better and better, we as humans will get better and better at understanding the development of human fetuses into uh, born viable or viable born people. And uh, I think right now we know that up to a certain point, a fetus isn't going to live outside the um, outside of the mother's womb. That point will change over time. And I think, and don't quote me on this, but at some point it was, I don't know, 32 weeks, and then it was 28, and now I think it's down to 24 weeks. In some cases, babies are viable. They weren't before we've gotten medically better, and we are able to sustain life outside of a mother's body earlier in pregnancy. I think that will continue to change, but I do think at some point we want to say this fetus is is going to be a person. It's viable. It has all its parts. I think for the pro-lifers, and I hope that doesn't offend anybody, but for the people who really believe abortion is wrong, and whether that's for religious reasons or because they believe in the sanctity of life irregardless of religion, mm-hmm. um, the uh, uh, this culture that we have that allows us as Americans to make the decision to stop life before we believe it begins and end life before its natural end is a tough spot for us. It's, it's considered a culture of death. It's not a culture of life. And should we be protective of all life from natural conception to natural death, should we be focusing more on keeping folks alive? So my, re- and I don't know if this is um, countering your point or not, but in my research on the issue, it seems like it's quite common for physicians to disagree when a fetus is viable. And so you said that, you know, it went from 32 weeks and now it's down to 24. Like, I have no doubt that that, that trend is there. But it seems pretty dicey in that the medical community still doesn't have, you know, complete agreement about, and maybe it's a case-by-case basis of when a fetus is viable or not, which makes the policy really tough. Well, and I would say not only case-by-case, but probably facility-by-facility plays into that. Mm -hmm. What equipment they have available, what doctors they have available, what knowledge they have. So I do think... And that's one of the reasons why I would say uh, we can't put a bright line. I think the Supreme Court in Roe tried to put a bright line on it. I think it's more fluid than that. And that may be difficult to legislate, of course. But um, I think right now 15 weeks is – was that where we were? Oh. I'm not sure. That's a good question. I I don't know. So, I mean, I think what we're trying to do, though, is we're trying to come to some sense of 
we do want to respect as a society the fact that babies are life. Babies, our fetuses will become babies left to their own and their mom's devices. Right. And and I, I don't want to forget about, you know, the, the woman's life and why they're having an abortion and therefore what happens um, beyond the point of fetus viability, but we're going to get to that next. Um, but let's go back to, you know, the state versus federal question and say, do you think fetus viability also should be addressed at the federal government? Uh, or, or my understanding of the Casey decision in 1992 is that not only did it uphold Roe, but it essentially put the fetus viability question to the states. Um, do you have a strong feeling one way or the other? It did put it back on the states. I do think it recognized, as did Roe, by the way, that scientifically, this is hard to legislate, whether from the bench where it shouldn't be in Congress where it should be, uh, a certain point in time, because we know that as, and I hate to keep going back to this, but as we start to understand more and more scientifically about how babies develop, at what point do they get each of the emotions and the um, physical dexterity to do different tasks and whatnot in vitro, that that line's going to move. And we, I, I would anticipate that as we continue to learn about our own biology, we'll learn more about when babies are actually um, able to um, persist on their own. I think one of my questions to you would be, okay. uh, what, you know, at what point do you think we should be saying to to mothers, you know, we could take this baby and continue to, um, you wouldn't have to carry it to term. We, we could essentially put it in a, I don't know what they call them, incubator, I'm going to call it, and finish um, the process of development. Do you think then that if we can, we should? I hadn't pondered that before, um, but I think this is where I put my conservative hat on and say, boy, uh, I think there are a lot of things that the community does better than the federal government, and raising a child is one of them. Um, it, it, obviously, there's exceptions to that, and so my immediate response, and thanks for putting me on the spot here, Sandy, <laughs> Sorry, Dan. is... Before we even consider something like that, we have to have the social infrastructure in place to do it well. And, I completely agree. And we are far, far from that. I completely agree. Yeah. But I think that that becomes the problem with abortion in general, or non-abortion in general, is that until we as a society are ready to actually put up some money and really support these children, it's very difficult for us to ask moms to do it alone. And we don't put as much pressure, of course, on fathers. Right. Well, that's a good segue into the, the last question as to why. Uh, you know, why do people have abortions and, and, and when? Um, why should abortion be legal or illegal? And we've covered uh, many of these points. Um, but should it matter why a person is having an abortion? Um, 
And I don't necessarily have any statistics here, but clearly and undisputedly, some abortions are medically urgent, if not necessary, to protect the health of the woman. Uh, And this can be true throughout the entire span of a pregnancy, which I was surprised to learn that there are there are times, according to the research I've done, where um, not having an abortion in the final trimester, sometimes just within weeks of birth, could compromise the, the life of the mother. And so I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of having an exception clause in just about every policy, right? Because it's Im- almost impossible to get a policy perfectly right. And so, like, as you said, and Hillary Clinton said, safe, legal, and rare, um, it seems like there are times where an abortion may be the best decision, even in a late-term pregnancy. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I, I want to speak to that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand on it a little bit. I'm going to go to okay. the rape and the incest as well. Okay, thank you. Uh, and the reason I'm going to all three of those together, rape, incest, life of mother, these are what I would call the ones that are a little bit easier for folks who don't believe in abortion to say there can be exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, not that the life of a child who's the victim of rape is any less worth a life. Uh, I'm sorry, not child victim of rape, but a result of rape. Uh, is it worth any less than any other person? But it can be harder Uh, mental health speaking uh, for the mom to carry that baby to term. With respect to um, life of the mother, there's such a thing as the double effect. I don't know if you've heard of this. This is even in some religions, they say, to save the life of the mother, terminating the pregnancy is acceptable. And the termination of the pregnancy may, in fact will, of course we all know that, result in the termination of the life of the child, Mm -hmm. but it is the life of the mother that you're saving. So the double effect is you save the life of the mother, but you lose the life of the baby. So double effect. Um, The other thing is, how graphic can I get? I hope I'm not gonna get too graphic here, but if a girl, young, let's put her at about 14, becomes pregnant by her father or grandfather and has now a baby who's a daughter, how much responsibility does the 14-year-old have for protecting her daughter from her father or grandfather? Mm -hmm. And if you want to say, no, no, that's the grandfather or the father's responsibility, which of course it is, our society has recently held a mother responsible for the actions of her child. Wow. So we that's true. I mean we have to think about these things unfortunately because they do happen. We have to think about these things. And so uh, I think for a lot of people when they look at that type of situation they go that's a lot closer to the line than the unwanted pregnancy because you know, I don't know. It was prom night and it was fun. Mm-hmm. And that's the, those are the ones that people find really distasteful mm-hmm. and, and perhaps not so rare. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, I wasn't surprised that there's not a lot of data out there um, because that type of information just may not be reported. So I don't think we really know 
why people are having abortions. I'm sure there's some general statistics, but um, I, I agree with you that it's certainly not, it's just not all people choosing abortion as contraception. Like there's some real, real reasons to have it. My question, I'm going to put you on the spot okay, again, Dan. Here we go. We now have medications that can be prescribed and prescribed over the counter uh, so that this would, in fact, be completely private. Um, women can choose to take it in the days after they've had sex, one way or another, whatever mm -hmm. way that has come about. Uh, should that type of medication be available to women, uh, you know, over the counter? So they wouldn't have to disclose to anybody that they've taken it. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, if it's safe, then the answer is yes. Um, I, uh, I, I'm putting myself out there, but I think it's it's the woman's right to choose um, what's in the best interest of her and her child. Uh, and I would say until birth. However, I fully agree that there are reasonable limits that we need to put on abortions. Um, um, but as I said, there should always be an exception, an allowable exception in extreme cases where the health of the mother is could be compromised. But that was a long-winded way of saying yes. How about you? Uh, well, I, I think, uh, like many things, this is not easy. But in trying to legislate for both sides to bring it to the middle ground, as it were, if it were really private, it would be a question of what a woman in her own mind uh, is thinking about when she's making these decisions. That doesn't mean that there aren't repercussions down the road. And we talked a little bit about uh, the mental health of the mother following an abortion. But if we really made this a private issue between a woman and her doctor, I think there would be a lot less contention about mm -hmm. where this is especially if we're in the blastocyst stage, if this stops the blastocysts from continuing to um, separate and become, or multiply and become an embryo, we may be more comfortable with the fact that there's, if there's human life there, consciousness may not be there yet. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not, I do believe there's some consciousness before uh, a baby's actually born. We know that they suck their thumbs. We know that they get nervous about things. Uh, so we know there's some consciousness while they're still in the womb. But at the very, very, very early stage, I don't think it's there yet. Well, I think, I, I didn't think we'd necessarily have time to get into it, but I think there's a whole nother discussion worth having on where do we draw the line on protecting life and or allowing the purposeful taking of a life. Um, you know, I think we as a society have said, um, if, if it's a matter of life, defend, uh, life or death and you're defending yourself, um, courts have supported the idea of you killing a person who's entered your home, right? So we've said, in that case, it's okay to take a life. Um, and this is another example of it's obviously very circumstantial, um, but there are times where it makes sense to take a life. If it's going to um, compromise the mother's health or ability to stay alive, then to me that's a no-brainer. 
Uh, and I think the same is true for protecting life. And this kind of gets back to the policies that we have to supporting, um, you know, people who have been born. Um, there's a limit, right? We can't, we don't go to the end of the earth to protect life, although we try in some cases. Um, so it's just, to me, too complicated to try and wrap up into a policy, especially a full ban. Um, that just, to me, seems crazy and completely unrealistic. So I think what you're saying here is we we value life somewhat differently um, in different circumstances. I'll give you a, a different scenario, of course, is the death penalty, mm-hmm. which some states allow and some states don't. And if right. you're going to commit some sort of felony where they allow uh, the death penalty, well, that was you should have picked a different state maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But... Uh, but I, I think it's true. I, I want to get back to that women's health thing just for a second okay. because we went from prior to Roe, prior to Casey really, we went from women's life to women's health. So we had a pretty narrow area there where you, the law allowed for protecting the woman. We, I talked about the double effect and you could protect her life. But then we expanded it to women's health. And one of the problems with that expansion was health can be anything. It can be physically the health of her womb, her uterus, her baby, and what's happening with her body to what might happen to her in terms of mental health later, her emotions, a a whole plethora of other things which really opened up that area of legal abortion but not being so rare anymore. Mm -hmm. And perhaps if we had a bigger conversation about the sanctity of life, is there such a thing? And if there is, does it it start in uterus and go through natural death or does it stop somewhere short of natural death? And... Mm -hmm. We do have the difficulty at the other end of life. A lot of us have seen the generation before us go through a very undignified part of life before they pass. And we know that we struggle with watching them through that portion of life as well. But if we, if we terminate before life starts and we end early, are we not then sort of dehumanizing it, it, what it is to be human, and does that sort of add to our society's problem with, you know, murders and school shootings and so on? And I don't want to get, I don't want to go too far afield, but my point is we don't as a society value life perhaps as much as we should. Hmm. Well, that, that might have to be another show because uh, that's, a, that's a loaded question uh, or a loaded um, issue issue yeah um, but I, I I think you're absolutely right uh, in in that there's it, it's worthy of discussion um, yeah um, anything else on the on the why well I think we really didn't talk about why the Supreme Court changed directions 
And if we have time, I'd like to tackle that one. I think. Let's do that. And you have you have heard me on this, not in this radio program, but you've heard me on this before. The, in my opinion, the Supreme Court stepped into an issue that it should not have tackled. Okay. This is not in the purview of the Supreme Court, and we're, I think, as a society. Either way, whether you were upset with Roe to begin with or you're upset with Dobbs now, uh, upset with the Supreme Court. But I will say uh, in January of this year, Joe Biden picked up where the Supreme Court sort of said, "Okay, we're out of it. Now it goes back to the states. Joe Biden stood up and said, well, I'm going to pass an executive order to address abortion. This is not the right place either. The presidency is not where legislation should be made. And I think as Americans, we should be upset with our Congress, which did not tackle the issue in the 50 years between the passage of Roe and the passage of Dobbs. Mm -hmm. Because if we had insisted that Congress do its job, which we haven't been insisting, nor has Congress been doing, Mm -hmm. we would have had federal legislation. And if not federal, then we need the states to pass legislation. But like like the death penalty, then we have different rules depending on the states where we live and we end up with uh, unequal protections. So I do think it's incumbent upon us to tell Congress, do your job, get some legislation around this so that we actually have an input, which we should have as a democracy. We should be telling Congress what we want to see passed. And if we're not doing that, then we're part of the problem. Agreed. It seems, I hate to say it, but it seems unfathomable to think that any Congress in the next few years would be able to come up with reasonable legislation on this topic. No, I, I understand that. Yeah, that doesn't res, uh, that doesn't absolve us from no. telling Congress they should be doing their jobs. Agreed. They didn't do it for that fifty years, and they probably won't do it now. But the reality is, we shouldn't be upset with the Supreme Court or President Biden for getting involved in this, when the people who should be involved in it have just abdicated their responsibility and said we're we're just not going to touch that because we won't get reelected. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Agreed. And I should clarify that that's your opinion. Others might say, no, it shouldn't be Congress. It should be the Supreme Court, uh, like Roe did in establishing that right. Um, And I think it's also, for the listeners, it's also quite a strong possibility that uh, the pro-life anti-abortion community will try and bring it back to the Supreme Court and ban it on a federal level, so bringing it back to the Supreme Court and bypassing Congress. Do you agree that that's a possibility? It certainly will come back to the Supreme Court at some point. This is such a a, a basic um, human issue that it will certainly come back. But I do disagree with you that it might be the Supreme Court. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18 of the Constitution says, Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into, I'm reading it, execution the foregoing powers. So it is really Congress who's supposed to make the laws. 
the Supreme Court now adjudicates whether those laws are appropriate or not and whether they're appropriately um, applied or not, but they are not supposed to be. I, and I understand this judicial activism. That's a whole different topic, too. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I don't mean to advocate for that. And um, I must admit that someone who's been to law school and who's been a pol- police officer probably is more learned on the topic than someone who went to architecture school. So <laughs> I don't know uh, about that. You're well read. <laughs> uh, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Um, Okay, well, uh, time is flying, and we only have about a minute left. Any closing thoughts? I just would ask your listeners to remember that when they're advocating for one side or the other, that they remember the person on the other side of the issue is worthy of their respect, just as in terms of the dignity of human beings. And then they're not crazy. They just have a different opinion. Uh, and, and it can be tough. Yep. But to listen to one another. What a great note to end on. Thank you, Sandy Kister. Uh, and thank you, Katie and Kay listeners, for joining me today. It was an honor. Today's show was abortion. The if, who, where, when, and why. I'm Dan Richardson. My email address is richardson at roth.net. Thank you for listening to Katie and Kay and the Meet in the Middle show. And we'll be back in a month. Thank you very much. It was seven.